Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the Zahir by Jorge Luis Borges. This was first published in a Buenos Aires magazine uh, in July 1947. It's usually shown as 49. Um, and then I found a translation in 1965 from a 1965 book called Story Strange and Sinister. The translator is deceased uh, more than 50 years, so we get to have the audio or the um, the story as public domain and enjoy it. However, I did spot a number of PDFs online that supposedly have this story, and some of them are radically different. So I don't know if they're bad translations, mistranslations. Um, but it's typical Borges not to have uh, only one way of telling a story either. There are several translations out here. The one that we have starts in Buenos Aires. The Zahir is an ordinary coin worth 20 centavos. And it's a great, great story. I think everybody should uh, listen to it, uh, read it. It's The PDF is on the PDF page. It is amazing. It's super deep. We're going to have a whole lot of trouble talking about it on this podcast because there is so much more to say than any short <laughs> period of time can cover. But all that being said, Eric, would you give us a slight um, a plot outline? Because it's a pretty simple plot, I think. Uh, the story is told in the first person. It is told in the form of what we come to realize is the form of a memoir of an incredibly erudite person who refers to himself as Borges. Uh, in real life, Jorge Luis Borges, the author of this story, uh, spent his professional career uh, as the director of the National Library of Argentina in Buenos Aires. And he was polyglot and incredibly erudite. Uh, so, in a way, this fictional Borges uh, is a lot like Borges. And one of the problems with this story, I should say the problems the story raises in one way or another, is the difficulty one has in dis discriminating between reality and something else. Uh, we could call it fiction, of course, because we're reading here a fictional story about something that we don't believe ever actually happened to anyone actually named Borges or anyone else. And I'll say in a moment what that, that is. But within the story, there are other stories and included in all of that, even the line that talks about how to the dreamer, reality is a dream. So fictions, dreams, narratives that control our lives. That What's the boundary between some reality and this? A Zahir, it turns out, uh, is a term that has a number of uses, but it comes from Islam. And its most common uh, notion is that it is the, the manifestation of what is the truth within. So you can fixate on someone's face. And if you truly, truly were to get past it, um, you'd understand the reality of the person's soul. So the Zahir is also then something that serves as an object of obsession. And also we come to learn in the course of this memoir come 
treatise, erudite treatise, um, if one becomes sufficiently obsessed, one has become the object of one's own contemplation and is therefore also a Zahir. So the way the story goes is the memoirist says that the Zahir was an ordinary 20 centavo coin in Buenos Aires. Um, he then goes on to describe it in some detail. It's got it's a 1929 uh, date on it. Um, and then he talks about how the Zahir in this mystical sense, which we don't at this point yet know, um, was many other things in many other places and many other times, including a blind man in one place and an astrolabe somewhere else and a compass somewhere else and a jewel and a vein of marble in a pillar. Um, it's all sorts of things. So part of what is going on is that the, the memoirist is living in a world of obsessive erudition. And his erudition turns more and more toward the Zahir after he acquires it, which he does when it is given to him in change for buying a rum uh, after having walked the streets, having left the wake of a woman whom he had loved, but only but but not consummated in any way. He had admired and loved her. This woman wanted to be perfect. And she would look at the fashions of everything, of when to arrive, what to wear, how to speak, and make herself the most perfect exemplar of all of these, these desiderata. But fashion being what it is, these things all change all the time. And so whatever she was became an object of derision for her the next the next day or the next month so she's constantly trying to obsessively trying to achieve a kind of perfection which our memoirist says naturally you would assume reader i loved her and i cried for her death though why we should naturally assume that i do not know he can't get rid of this coin he's thinking about the coin all the time he tries to get rid of the coin at one point he manages to divert his thoughts from the coin by writing a story. And so for about a month, he's involved in writing a story. And the story itself is one about obsession. Mm -hmm. And he comes out of writing that story that is telling us about the writing of that story, and then talks about the research that he does trying to figure out some way to replace the Zahir in his mind. But he cannot. He gives us a disquisition on the notion that money, so this is his version of the Zahir, is abstract. It is, he says, the future tense. Because the money isn't a thing. The money is what it could become. It could become any experience, any object that money could buy. So that money is not anything of itself. And that tacks back to the Zahir not being anything necessarily it could be a man a person a tiger the vein of marble and a column uh, so he is getting more and more obsessed the writing which of course he's doing by having this story for us to read um, the writing seems to divert him because it gives him a chance to form his world in some other way but the erudition that runs so densely through this brings other people's worlds in all the time as if this and now i'm going biographically here this monumental librarian 
could find order in the world if only he could find the right library. But he cannot. And he says that what's happening is that it is consuming him more and more. And eventually he will not be able to be Borges anymore. But at this moment, he can still remember being Borges. And when he gets to that end, he, he ends this way. I shall no longer perceive the universe. I shall perceive the Zahir. According to the teaching of the idealists, that's a certain kind of philosophical school, the words live, live and dream are rigorously synonymous. From thousands of images, I shall pass to one. There's all the multiplicity things that one could be a person, right? Um, but no, I will become one image. From a highly complex dream to a dreamer of a dream of utter simplicity, others will dream that I am mad. I shall dream of the Zahir. When all the men on earth think day and night of the Zahir, which will be a dream and which a reality, the earth or the Zahir? In the empty night hours, I can still walk through the streets. And I think what's important here is that I can still walk through the streets. He's still Borges. Dawn may surprise me on a bench in Garay Park, that's in Buenos Aires, thinking, trying to think, of the passage in the Azrar Nama, where it says that the Zahir is the shadow of the rose and the rending of the veil. I associate that saying with this bit of information. In order to lose themselves in God, the Sufis, that's a variety of Muslims, mystic, the Sufis recite their own names or the 99 divine names until they become meaningless. I long to travel that path. Perhaps I shall conclude by wearing away the Zahir simply through thinking of it again and again. Perhaps behind the coin, I shall find God. It's amazing. This uh, story is literally too rich for a finite amount of time to talk about. <laughs> I want to explain a little bit why that is. Um, uh, in that first paragraph, he actually has a massive digression, which is amazing, about other Zahirs other than his coin. Um, but before we go there, I want to just uh, think about how to place this. I, I, I was thinking about how to place this in my own mind because I, I, I've not read everything Borges has written, but whatever I've read, I've been highly impressed by. And the same is here. It's super rich. Um, in a recent podcast um, that I listened to that we did together, you talked about John Dewey saying a story was fun uh, could have fundedness. This story is overflowing with so many riches that coins are infinite here. Because as he describes the coin in the second sentence, there is a mystery that is never revealed. And we as readers can begin contemplating it and perhaps never know the answer, given that Borges never gives it to us. The letters NT and the number 2 are scratched as if with it, with a razor blade or a pen knife. 1929 is the date on the obverse. The obverse is the side of the coin with the head on it. The other side of the coin is called the reverse, if you know about how to name coin parts. 
And then there's a massive uh, parentheses that talks about all the different Zahirs that are around. And I started studying this and found myself with limited time in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized there's no way to get through every reference that Borges is laying down in the limited time I've provided myself. So I decided to just go with the first one. Um, when I, I didn't recognize a, a name, and I'll, I'll stop when I get there. Um, in Guzarat, towards the end of the 18th century, the Zahir was a tiger. Now, I've read a lot of Borges, and I know that he himself is obsessed with tigers because he talks about them in many other stories, uh, the circular ruins being a great example of it. In, and uh, also, I think it's an oblique reference to uh, William Blake's poem, which is itself a kind of Zahir. Um, in Java, a blind man uh, from the mosque of uh, Surakarta, with whom the faithful pelted with stones. In Persia, an astrolabe, which Nadir Shah caused to be sunk to the bottom of the sea. And I will point out that astrolabes are sometimes shaped like coins uh, and often have beautiful images on them. In the Mahdi's prisons, along about 1892, it was a little compass which Rudolf Karl von Slatten touched tucked into the fold of a turban. And that's where I started my obsession, because I'd heard of the other guys. I'm like, who's Rudolf Karl von Slatten? And when I decided to look who up that was, because I assumed this wasn't just a made-up character for a bit of background for, uh, you know, no reason, it's Borges. He is extremely well-read. This dude, Rudolf Karl von Slatten, is an amazing figure if you read his Wikipedia entry, which is very extensive. Um, it, it It's kind of like this story in the sense that one could become obsessed with this figure. Born a Jew, <laughs> he was, uh, his father converted to Catholicism in Austria. He then moved to, uh, this boy moved to Egypt to become a bookkeeper or a bookseller, I should say. Um, and then tried to visit uh, Chinese Gordon, a general in uh, British general in in the Sudan. Um, he didn't quite get that far, but later on, when he was a lieutenant in the Austrian army, did get that far and became uh, a kind of co-commander of a region, became a bay in Sudan. Later on, he becomes a a knight of the British Empire many times over. Um, in a battle uh, in Sudan where he is a, uh, a leader, uh, his troops are failing, so he converts to Islam. Um, later on, <laughs> after he's wounded and, and uh, returned to England, he wants to marry, but he's, he's Islamic, so the Pope gives him a pardon. And he keeps changing and changing and changing this guy. His Wikipedia entry is insane. It's just and, – and he's written books, which obviously Borges has read. And that's my point is that this figure, this just cast-off figure, this might be a true thing that there's a compass which Carl von Slatten touched and tucked into the fold of his turban. That could be in one of the books. But the point is, is – uh, Borges is obsessed with this character. He's just so interesting. And that every reference, every allusion in this story is like that. It goes deep, deep, deep. Further, though, 
there is a kind of double obsession in that the coin that he's obsessing over has this uh, these strange markings on it, the NT and the 2, um, and it has a shape and a size and a, f- a figure on one side and writings on the other that are stamped into them. Um, I, I was suddenly questioning, like, who is this figure, the figure on the obverse? And the description of the woman, Clementina Villar, who sort of kicks off this whole journey for him, her death, and the fact that he, late night after his, her wake, goes to a uh, tavern and orders a brandy, takes this coin, sees it, obsesses over it, can't stop thinking about it. He's obviously obsessed with her prior to that, for he knows many of the facts of her life, even though perhaps he's never even met her. She was in all the magazines. She had a fashionable incident. Her doctor father uh, had a a fall in his economics, and they had to move to a bad area. I think it's heavily implied that she killed herself um, in trying to make herself perfect in her obsession with that which was fashionable. She became unable to do that. I think she did kill herself. So when he is going away from her funeral and he sees this coin and he becomes obsessed with it on, on its markings, the NT and the two, and also I think the image of the picture, it strikes me that, that whatever image is on that coin would be important. So I thought, oh, it's probably some Argentinian figure some uh, politician or something. Turns out it's the goddess Liberty and the coin and the idea of it being able to be spent on many different things, on maps, on a beer, on a coffee, on a trip to the symphony. Is a, He's meditating on the meaning of money here in a way that makes it seem like it's important and completely unimportant, but it's obsessive. This is so deep that when he goes to try and get rid of the coin, he he rounds the corners blindly, walking as, it, as if to try and lose the place where he can possibly recover it. And all of this is actually foreshadowed by a name in that opening where a character named Leopold Bloom tries to lose a coin in a book called Ulysses, another book that I'm sure Borges has read. So, as usual, it's full of literary references, but not to the point of of just to make it seem richer. It is because he is literally obsessed with the idea of meditating on the meaning of money. But by Um, he here, you mean... Borges, the narrator, not Borges, the the author. I'm not so sure that this story isn't a true story. I think it's impo- it makes me question what true is because obviously it's a very meta level. I don't know if this coin literally existed, but I know that I know in the way that only a person can that coins must have passed through his hands, and in that sense, if we are a reader having this story pass through our hands. We can feel what obsession is 
by paying the closest attention. The only way I think you could not become obsessed by this story at least a little bit is by not being able to understand any of the words. Because it, it it's so rich. I, I read one person's interpretation of what those markings mean, the NT and the two. Did you... Uh, have did you encounter that, or did you have your own theories? I have my own theory. Okay, I'd love to hear it. I think it's an apocryphal way of looking at God. It's the second version of the New Testament. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and similar. I, I found somebody's um, uh, point that NT stands for the same things in English as it does in Spanish, Nuevo Testamento, or whatever it is, and the two being. Uh, perhaps uh, referring to the Gospel of Mark. Um, and then this person had picked out some lines from there that show basically how people can become nearly religiously... Obs- that's not what the Gospel of Mark does, but I think that that might be what what Borges is doing. And the final lines seem to confirm this, right? He... He says... In, yes, but those... Fi- I won't interrupt. Sorry, Jesse. I long to travel that path. Perhaps I shall conclude by wearing away the Zahir simply through thinking of it again and again. Perhaps behind the coin I shall find God. Behind the coin, he says, this coin he can see both sides of it simultaneously. Um, Which is interesting because coins are the positions of our eyes (laughs) and the disposition of coins means that this should not be possible. But that's all he sees. And, and he also makes reference when he talks about the different things that a coin could be, mm-hmm. and that this coin brings to mind all of the f- many famous coins, including the one that Leopold Bloom is trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions the obols that are on the eyes of the dead so that they can be transported to Hades. Yep. Um, it's it's These coins are everywhere. There's a fractal uh, aspect to obsession which gets worked out, for instance, when he talks about the person who, for whom the tiger was the Zahir. And he, he's in a, in a prison cell, etched tigers, and tigers agglomerated to make a larger tiger, and the larger tigers agglomerated to make a map of the world that was a tiger, and so on and so forth. Tigers have their tigers, obsessions have their obsessions, and the only way out is to leave the words, because the words have their own wake they follow along and we then dip our toes into them certainly borges does by bringing up all of this erudition i I hope it's not an interruption to to want to suggest that there are things here not only at the obvious level but even at the inexplicit level when you talk about that that passage you remind us or you remind me uh anyone who's read the story you remind them of the going around that poor Borges is trying to get rid of the coin. He walks around and finds himself back where he began. This is actually, I believe, a reference to Freud. Hmm. Freud, in his most famous essay, the only one fully devoted to fantasy, the uncanny, das Unheimliche. In German, a 1919 essay, if I recall the date correctly. Um, and I know that, that Borges knew Freud in, in part because I asked him, but in part because you see it in, uh, in his writings. In The Uncanny, Freud defines the uncanny as seeing the familiar in an unfamiliar place. Mm. 
And he gives this example. He says, suppose you should be in a strange city, one you have not visited before, and a city with canals. You leave your hotel and you notice uh, as you're walking around a red light. Now, you try to get back to your hotel and you take one turn after another after another, thinking you're coming back to your hotel. But suddenly you realize you're seeing the same red light. That, he says, is uncanny. What Freud doesn't mention, but I think any critical reader of Freud would understand, including the actual Jorge Luis Borges, the description of the city and the presence of a red light matches exactly Amsterdam. And what, Borge, what Freud is talking about is the inability, having left one's hotel, to go back without returning first to the red light district. Mm. So there is a, an unconsummated sexual obsession mm-hmm. implicit in the Freud essay. And the same plot is enacted in the, the Borges memoir. And in fact, Borges's, that is the, the memoirist Borges's obsession with Clementina Villar is in fact an unconsummated desire to get away from her, but keeps going back and back to finding the coin that was spent on her behalf. And so there is a, a fractal reality mm. that Borges lives in that includes the, the richness of all of these other works which he cannot get away from unless he can transcend these aspects of obsession, which would mean simultaneously that he has seen God and, as with a, a, a Jane who makes the, becomes a Tirtankara, a making of the crossing, and gets out of the, um, the, the cycle of uh, Samsara and Nirvana, becomes, in fact, a part of God, and therefore no longer himself. So the question is, can the last word of this memoir, story, essay, contemplation, can it take all of these things and make it possible by seeing them so fractally, so richly, so imposedly, one aspect upon another, make it possible for us to get beyond and therefore free? even if to do so means we have to lose ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's a deeply philosophical story that I think involves us endlessly. The reason for the erudition is just so that people like you and me and any interested reader will go back to the library to find out who these people really are. Mm. Did this actually happen? And so on. It's it's to me amazing. The that parenthetical description in the very first paragraph of all the different things of, excuse me, many of the different things the Zahir has been, it begins with in Gujarat towards the end of the 18th century, the Zahir was a tiger. Later in the story, there's a reference to what the, the Zahir was in Sindh. Well, it turns out that Gujarat is the another alternate spelling for Gujarat <laughs> and the Gujarat state in India is in fact just to the east and shares a border with Sindh, a desert state in Pakistan. So we are in fact finding that the Zahir transcends borders, 
but it brings us to places we know. And yet these are places we know that we have never visited or most of us have never visited. I've actually been to the mosque of Cordova, uh, but I don't think I don't think that Borges is counting on that at all. He's trying to see how just to be a scholar, we can become so obsessed with scholarship just to care about language. We can care so much about language. Tennyson says, Borges has us, tells us this. It's on page 128 in our, uh, in our uh, PDF. Tennyson once said that if we could understand a single flower, we should know what we are and what the world is. Perhaps, this Borges is in the memoir saying, perhaps he meant that there is no fact, however insignificant, that does not involve universal history and the infinite concatenation of cause and effect. Perhaps he meant that the visible world is implicit in every phenomenon, just as the will, according to Schopenhauer, is implicit in every subject. I should tell you that Schopenhauer's The World as Will and Idea was one of the first books of real philosophy that I read back when I was about 12 or 13 and started getting interested in that subject, the world as will and idea. Perhaps he meant that the visible world is implicit in every phenomenon, just as the will, according to Schopenhauer, is implicit in every subject. The Kabbalists pretend that man is a microcosm, a symbolic mirror of the universe. According to Tennyson, everything would be, everything, even the intolerable Zahir. <laughs> Just letting us know that you can start with Tennyson and you will get to the point where you have to realize you must not live with the Zahir. You cannot tolerate it. You must get beyond it. To do so might be to see God. It will certainly be to lose yourself. She's the this woman of obsession. She actually is my central obsession in this story. I want to read a couple bits. She was forever experimenting with new metamorphoses, as though trying to get away from herself. The color of her hair and the shape of her coiffure were celebratedly unstable. She was always changing her smile, her complexion, the slant of her eyes. When she falls down later in life, um, she despairs even greater. Moreover, it painted her to have a... Com com have to compete with giddy little nobodies. And then the gloomy Arras apartment was too much to bear. On the 6th of June, Clementina Villar committed the solecism. I looked this word up. It, it means grammatical, perceived as a grammatical mistake, um, of dying in the very middle of the southern district. <laughs> and then my note says, a fashion... Well, the, the second meaning... The second meaning is a, a breach of etiquette. Indeed. And my my note here says, this is a fashion faux pas, <laughs> in the sense that this woman <laughs> who tried so much to be always fashionable, and when she found herself unfashionable due to circumstances of the war or financial circumstances, not able to afford all the things that she would want, in her death... She becomes all the things she was before. Um, he says, uh, Clementina Villar was magically what she had been 20 years for, before. Her features recovered that authority, which is conferred by pride, by money, by youth, and awareness of rounding off of a hierarchy. And this again, this rounding, 
It's amazing. It, it's so cool. I'm going to read just one more sentence. I thought no version of that face has uh, has which has disturbed me so will stay in my memory as long as this one. It is right that it should be the last, since it might have been the first. I left her rigid among the flowers, her disdain perfected by death. And this is so interesting to me because he leaves this wake at two o'clock in the morning, walks to a bar, gets a drink, looks at the coins in his hand, and he sees liberty there. I think this is uh, almost pro-suicide poem in the sense that the other two characters who we find out in this story, in this Argentina, are obsessed by a similar coin or an identical coin, are in the insane asylum. And Borges, who's telling us this story, says, I am for now, at the bottom of the first page, I am still, however incompletely Borges. He's on this own path. This is a Lovecraftian story. The, the, the monster here is not a, a physical creature somewhere lurking under the sea. It is a reckoning with what we are and who God is and the meaning of life. Profoundly interesting story, Eric. I see why you referred to Dewey's concept of fundedness mm-hmm. because... Every noun phrase in this story, every full sentence, every move from one paragraph to the next provides always something more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.